Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be hosting this discussion today. We are pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, two very significant events in the last two days, which we'll be focusing on uh, before we go to the question and answer section. The first is just released uh, literally within the last few hours is the judicial or the outlines of the first steps of the judicial reform that has been talked about for years and certainly was a major issue during the uh, election campaign was a major promise, not just from the ruling party that they could, but also the religious Zionist parties supported by the ultra-Orthodox parties. So they, these reforms pretty much have wall-to-wall -wall support uh, from within the government. And the first, as I said, the first details were released today. There aren't too many shocks uh, amongst them um, by new uh, Justice Minister Yeriv Levine, uh, very much a confidant of Prime Minister Netanyahu, um, and some of the highlights are what was talked about for a long time is the override clause, which means that um, basically since 1995, we've talked about this in the past, but just as a refresher, since 1995, the High Court in Israel has given itself powers to overrule uh, Knesset legislation if it finds it unreasonable um, if it finds it in uh, opposition to basic laws. It gave these basic laws a quasi-constitutional uh, basis, which they didn't really ever have. Israel is one of the few countries in the world that does not have a written constitution. So in 1995, with the revolution by former uh, head of Supreme Court, Aaron Barak, that gave the high court powers, A, that it did not have, and B, went further, arguably, this is certainly the argument that's been made by the current government and various people who are propelling this reform, that um, Aaron Barak gave uh, High Court more uh, control, more activism than any in any democracy in the world. And that's certainly something that's been argued by many jurists and academics. Uh, so since then, the uh, High Court in Israel has basically decided what it can rule on, on the basis of what it calls reasonability, uh, which we'll talk about in, in a little bit, and uh, if any law they believe contravenes one of the basic laws, which, as I said, is a sort of super law, uh, which stands above uh, the regular laws, um, then they can strike it down, and they've struck down many laws uh, throughout the decades ever since. Um, this is something, especially on the right, which has been a major, major issue, um, one could certainly see much of what is being talked about today. One of the, let's just say, proponents or originators of this reform is now head of the Knesset Committee on Law, Justice and Constitution, Simcha Rotman. Uh, just as a little plug, on Monday we'll be having Simcha um, on a webinar, Middle East Forum webinar, talking about this and why he feels it's necessary uh, for Israel's challenges in security and diplomacy. And obviously he can explain 
uh, some of these issues in far greater detail with far greater expertise than I can. So if you're interested to hear more about it, uh, tune in on Monday, I believe, two o'clock um, uh, Eastern Standard Time, nine o'clock Israel time. But anyway, the point is that this is going to be a massive change, three decades of change um, where the Knesset will regain power to override the Supreme Court. In other words, if the Knesset passes a law that the Supreme Court then decides uh, is, uh, it doesn't pass its, um, its test of reasonableness, especially against one of the basic laws, the Knesset with an absolute majority of 61 can then re-legislate it and can ensure that it uh, passes even against the objections of the Supreme Court. What proponents would argue that it rebalances or recalibrates the power uh, the balance between the three powers, which is government, legislature, and uh, the judicial system. The right and the, the current coalition has argued for a long time that these unelected officials who basically elect themselves, which is another element we'll go into in a second, uh, basically have more power than the, uh, the representatives of the people, the democratically elected representatives of the people, and they would like to pass the balance back more towards the elected representatives of the people um, and away from the unelected um, uh, members of the uh, justice system. Um, there are, you know, there is a bit more nuance to it than that, and, and uh, Yurev Levine has promised that, you know, all these issues will get a full debate and a full hearing from all sides uh, during um, the legislative um, process, which is going to undertake soon. Another, as I said to you before, they're going to get rid of this test of reasonableness, which they said can, be, again, this is what the coalition will claim, that it can be abused, that it doesn't really mean anything, it doesn't exist in other judicial systems, and it's basically just a sort of made-up term that allows um, the justice system to disqualify what it likes. Interestingly enough, and this is really crucial uh, from a political point of view, all of this is happening the day before the, the, the High Court is going to discuss whether Arya Derry, as we know, uh, twice convicted of uh, tax offences and others, um, can serve as a minister. He is, at the moment at least, uh, interior minister and health minister. He was convicted once, that's in prison, and then had to you know, go into semi-retirement from politics for seven years because he, um, he, 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 his sentence included um, uh, moral turpitude. And then he came back to politics. And last year, he accepted a plea bargain, which would see him uh, resign from Knesset for, again, tax offences. Um, the attorney general, which is going to be another reform, um, uh, her job is supposed to be to defend the government and the government passed or the coalition passed a law which changed uh, a basic law or amended a basic law to ensure that Arya Derry could serve uh, as a minister, even though before that uh, it said that a minister who had um, been convicted of uh, criminal offences, etc, etc, cannot serve as a minister. So they changed that and at the moment he can serve. Now this uh, basically, three petitioners from outside government, this is again something relatively unique uh, to the Israeli system, have petitioned the High Court to annul um, Ari Derry's appointment as minister. And the Attorney General for the government 
basically said that she cannot justify the government this um this law or uh, i should say cannot justify Derry's appointment. It said it's an extreme element of unreasonableness. Again, going back to that term. Uh, again, you know, don't ask me about some of these legal aspects because uh, you know they may be above my head. Save them maybe for Simcha on Monday. But basically, th there's a lot of ironies here because she did say that she cannot justify and she cannot stand as is her role uh, in the High Court and justify. Uh, Arya Derry's appointment, but she did say that it should be outside the scope of the High Court's work because they changed a basic law. And as I said to you before, one of the complaints on the right is that a basic law uh, should not be challenged. It, it has higher powers than a regular law, which is exactly what Aaron Barak brought in in 1995. So there's a certain irony that a government that is seeking to change the nature of the judicial system's uh, relationship to basic laws relied on that same basic law to ensure that, uh, that or to try and argue that the High Court does not have standing um, on this particular case. It's quite a complicated, quite complex. I hope I've been able to just give you a little bit around the edges of, of what is going on, but it is, a, 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 you know, it's for the right, this is something that they've been waiting for for a long time in the elections. Uh, the right has argued against the power of the court. They believe that the, the Supreme Court, at least for the last almost three decades, has very much tilted to the left. And they have arguably, I haven't looked statistically, but arguably uh, shot down more laws of the right-wing government than the left-wing government. And again, another crucial reform that uh, Justice Minister uh, Yuri Levine is trying to bring in is trying to change the balance of who appoints this, uh, the, the, the judicial bench. At the moment, the balance is from the judicial system. Um, but what uh, Yuri Levine is arguing that there should be more of a balance towards, again, uh, legislators, towards the public representatives. So there's there's two uh, at the moment, I believe it's three, there's a, there's a panel of nine judge uh, nine on the appointments committee, three from the government, um, four from the judicial system judges, uh, sitting judges, and then there's two from the bar association. The argument is the bar association is very much people within that system that tilts what the right would argue is more liberal, more left wing against right wing causes. So it's basically five. Uh, uh, six against uh, uh, three, and you know, uh, there's no chance of really going against that uh, system to some extent. What your Levine's reforms will do is take those two uh, from the uh, from the bar association and give them to uh, individuals, public individuals of their choice, which will then tilt back towards uh, the, uh, the 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 government. Uh, the elected officials, because three plus two will be five, which is a majority in nine. So that's another thing. So there's a really, really, uh, you know, massive changes ahead. It really could reshape the way um, Israel legislature works, the judicial oversight. Is it a threat to democracy? No. You know, it's, uh, again, to give both sides, you know, the, the right would say, all we're doing is trying to go in line with countries like America, which has more political interaction with the judicial system, which doesn't have such an activist court. You know, the Supreme Court in the US sees a fraction of the amount of cases that the Israel Supreme Court has. And they argue, the right would argue, 
that we're just taking ourselves back to the pre-1995 uh, vision uh, where, where there's more balanced vision between the three powers of government. Um, and that's what the right would argue. The left is very much, or let's say not even the left, but the members of the previous government, the current opposition, are outraged by this. They say that this is all to do with politics. It's all to do with Ariadere's case and more, you know, more, more, more in the background, but certainly more, they would argue more prominently, to do with uh, Netanyahu's uh, court uh, proceedings against him. Uh, they say he, you know, Netanyahu only became um, enamored with uh, the whole issue of judicial reform with the um, with the start of the, the cases against him. Uh, that's what they argue, that this is all personally motivated, politically motivated, that this is an attack of democracy, that they need judicial uh, activism, judicial oversight to make sure there's not a tyranny of the majority, a term that has been used quite a lot by opponents uh, in Israel over the last few days on that. Uh, again, I would really recommend to tune in on Monday to get a far deeper um, understanding of this, certainly from a point of view of, of a proponent of it. Um, the other big issue that came up this week was uh, new national security uh, uh, minister Itamar Ben-Gvir went up to the Temple Mount. Now, um, Itamar Ben-Gvir, this is not his first time he's been up to the Temple Mount. He's been up, I don't know if it's dozens or hundreds, but certainly many, many times as an individual, as a member of Knesset, but now this is the first time as um, as a government official, as a minister in a government. And it, to many people, it felt very, very different. Uh, the interesting thing here is that he said in advance that he would go up. And as one can imagine, there was a lot of condemnation internally and externally. One can imagine Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, probably didn't get a minute from all the calls from international leaders, from ambassadors, from uh, foreign officials, etc., telling him that he shouldn't do it. This is uh, a danger, et cetera, et cetera. And what seemed to be a walk back later in the same evening, Itamar Ben-Gvir himself said um, that I will be going up at some point in the next few weeks. So walking back that he's going to go tomorrow and saying he'll go at some point in the next few weeks. What actually occurred is first thing in the morning, Itamar Ben-Gvir did go up for a relatively short visit. Everyone liked to time it around 12 or 13 minutes. Some mocked him uh, from uh, from his opponent saying, you know, he went up, you know, when no one could create any sort of opposition and he sort of, you know, went very, very quickly and, and then was down just to, just as a show. That's what the opponents of the, uh, the particular uh, internal opponents. And there was these arguments that it's going to set off a terrible uh, escalation, perhaps Hamas uh, would get involved and, and others and whatever. In the end, it did nothing really happened, there weren't any riots, there weren't any rockets. Apparently there was one rocket um, that basically was launched from Gaza and ended, uh, landed in Gaza, some of them do, probably from Islamic Jihad, who certainly don't have the highest technology, technological prowess uh, in their rocket system. But certainly we didn't see the massive riots, the massive uh, reaction that some warned. What we did see diplomatically is quite a large uh, reaction. We did hear from the EU, we did hear from Israel's Arab allies, obviously also its uh, opponents and enemies obviously also got on that. And we also heard from the US a condemnation. What's interesting here is that everyone keeps on talking about the status quo. 
and how Itamar Ben-Gvir's visit violated the status quo. Well, actually, it didn't. He didn't. He went up. He didn't pray. He walked around. Jews are allowed to go up. And also, he's not the first minister, and he's not even the first uh, internal security minister uh, to go up. Gilad Erdan, when he was internal security minister, also went up to the Temple Mount. Certainly, it is a bit different because Itamar Ben-Gvir is more of a, you know, quote-unquote firebrand, more of a controversial figure. But certainly nothing in the status quo, uh, which everyone has been referring to around the world, was broken because Jews are allowed to go up to the Temple Mount. Jews are allowed to walk around the Temple Mount. Jews, according to the status quo, are not allowed to pray. There was no nothing in his visit that suggested that he prayed on the Temple Mount. He went up, as I said, 12 to 30 minutes, and then he came down. So there's a sort of irony that the world is talking about status quo that actually wasn't broken. What we hear now is that the Security Council at the behest of the Palestinians uh, will discuss this um, violation of the status quo, as they call it. The Jordanians and the Emiratis um, uh, will be bringing this up. Um, but the Americans, uh, it seems, have understood that they're, you know, that not to make anything actionable out of this uh, discussion. Finally, uh, coming from the Knesset only a couple of hours ago, there is a bit of optimism from the opposition. I met with people in the opposition, the coalition, because it's been a very difficult week for the coalition. The coalition, as I said, you know, this is one which, you know, I wouldn't say it's ideologically conformist, that everyone believes the same things, but one would think this is a government, you know, with no other options, every party in there, you know, th this is their best case scenario, et cetera, et cetera. But what we can see even from the first week is a war of words, there's a lot of mistrust there. The ultra-Orthodox parties within themselves are sniping each other. The ultra-Orthodox parties sniping at the Religious Zionist Party. Um, Gaffney, the leader of the Lithuanian non-Hasidic part of the United Torah Judaism, slammed Yitamar Bingvir for going up in the Temple Mount, arguing, and from his point of view, this is what his rabbis say, is that it's forbidden on Jewish law. Interestingly, the Hasidic part didn't say anything because their rabbis are far more gray, let's say. It's a more of a gray area whether they can go up or not. Um, even within the religious Zionist party or the Yudi, they're, they're sniping. No one trusts anyone. There's a lot of disagreement and it seems that there's a lot of uh, disappointment, mistrust with Netanyahu. Netanyahu in himself has a few rebels within his party. At least two Likud members didn't turn up uh, today, it didn't really hurt them. There wasn't any significant votes and they still have a significant majority. But if that um, uh, group within the Likud, dissatisfied people within the Likud grows, it could cause uh, Netanyahu problems down the road. Leg I would say legislatively, not necessarily on the basis of taking down the government, because I don't think anyone within the Likud would dare do that. One can imagine a political backlash or something like that. But certainly what we've seen in less than a week since the swearing in of this government, since the, since the ceremonial uh, uh, change uh, of ministers that happened throughout all the ministers, you know, there, there's been a lot of mistrust and a lot of sniping. So there are voices in the opposition who are a lot more optimistic about the situation than they were uh, a week ago. And I heard that from one of the leaders of the opposition today. But people in the coalition understand that they may not like each other, 
that this is the only partners that they'll have, because as I said, no one will want to bring down this government from in the coalition. There are no real other options to the right to bring someone in. And they're always worried that Netanyahu's end game is to bring in Benny Gantz. So we'll have to see uh, what happens with that, but certainly uh, a very, very interesting week. Uh, lots of issues, and I'm happy to take any questions. All right, thanks so much. Uh, the first one is from Reuven Hawk, just going back to the basics. Uh, what constitutes a basic law? How is a basic law enacted, and how many votes are required to pass a basic law? 61. Uh, it has to be an uh, absolute majority, um, and it has to be stated that this is a basic law. <clears throat> and as I said, you need you need 61 uh, to pass a law and to amend a law. Um, that's basically what the difference is, because any law just needs a, a majority. You know, some laws are passed like five votes to zero because no one really cares about it and no one really shows up for the law. It could be a relatively meaningless law. I would say meaningless because there's obviously always a reason for legislation, but that is not a basic law. It has to have a majority of 61. Thank you so much. Uh, David Levina, so far Netanyahu has been firm on insisting that the LGBTQT rights will not be in jeopardy despite the homophobic comments of some of the religious cabinet members. Do you think Netanyahu can actually prevent Israel from backsliding on uh, rights? I, I, I don't believe there'll be any significant rights um that will be changed well i mean like for example one of one of the things that was changed immediately with the new health minister is that uh during don't forget during the last government the health minister um was uh, from the merits party openly gay uh, uh nitan horowitz and he changed on medical forms uh i think from um father and mother to parent one and parent two and there was a bit of outrage, as one can imagine, from the conservative right, the religious right on this. So one of the first things the, the new health minister did was cancel that and return to father or mother. Um, I think we'll see a lot of things like that. Uh, we won't. And maybe, again, I don't want to belittle anything. And, you know, it, I'm just guessing on a lot of this stuff. But I don't think there'll be any significant curb on the rights um, of the LGBTQ uh, community, they'll be able to parade. I'm sure the parade in Jerusalem will be a little bit more tense than in previous years, but the parade in Tel Aviv, which is the biggest in the Middle East, which has, I think, tens of thousands of people will go ahead with the same level of gusto as it has in previous years. Don't forget the new speaker of the Knesset, who's the third highest official in Israel, is openly gay. Um, and Likud, you know, has been declared by and Netanyahu is a liberal, you know, a liberal right-wing party, and it's committed to freedom, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think there'll be any major changes, any major infringements on the rights of that community. Again, there may be some changes, some, again, I don't want to use the word minor change, because for some it's, it's a very important issue, but I think, you know, there'll be less significant changes, I'm sure, because Many of the ministers, if not most of the ministers involved here are now religious, whether on the far conservative right of the religious Zionist community or the ultra-Orthodox community. So certainly some of these things that were done in the last government will be overturned, but it won't infringe significantly on the rights of uh, the LGBTQ community. 
Thank you so much. Brock Korkmaz asks, what do you think about the UN General Assembly's latest resolution on Israel, especially about the Abraham Accords countries taking position against Israel? And Eric follows up, what effect would the, this legal decision have on Israel? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a decision to ask the ICJ to form an opinion on Israel's control over Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, Palestinian territories, whatever you call it. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a problematic first step in a deeply problematic um, series that could really uh, have major significant ramifications for the state of Israel. Uh, we're still at an early stage. It could be that the ICJ decide not to deal with the issue, decide to put off the issue, decide to deal with different levels of the issue, could go even further. So I'm worried, even though I believe that the, the term apartheid wasn't used in the resolution, that the ICJ can add it on later. Um, so it is very problematic. I've spoken before about the difference between bilateral relations and multilateral relations. Um, uh, I don't want to go too deep into that again, but Israel has very good relations with countries who will vote perennially against Israel, the UN, partly because it just suits them, partly because um, it helps them when they decide they want positions because there's only one Jewish state, whereas there's 22 Arab states, 57 Muslim states, part of a wider grouping of what used to be called non-aligned. So you tend to vote in blocks um, for political reasons, but also because it's just, what is Israel going to do? You know, the, the, the voting, certainly the voting pattern certainly did improve on that vote as to the previous one. Um, and Netanyahu liked to tout a moral victory, the fact that a lot more countries voted against this uh, and abstained uh, as in the previous one. Um, but it's more of a moral victory. The fact is that the process is developing um, and it is being sent to the ICJ. So certainly that is something which really worries uh, the Israeli government. So they'll be working a lot on that. And now they have a full-time foreign minister for the first time in a while. So he will be uh, focused certainly on that process. Thank you so much. Eric asks, why does Jordan, et cetera, have issues with Jews going on the Temple Mount? Isn't this a violation of uh, freedom of religion? Well, that's that's a very tricky issue. Basically, Jordan considered themselves and were made the custodians of the Temple Mount as part of the Jordan-Israel Peace Treaty from 94, I think it was. Um, Jordan, don't forget, Jordan occupied Jerusalem uh, uh, from 1949 to 1967. And for them, they like to be the custodians. It gives them a lot of prestige in the uh, Arab and Muslim world. Um, and... You know, if you go up to the Temple Mount, you can see that there's pictures of the Jordanian flag on pretty much or at least many of the signs on top of the Temple Mount itself, which really speaks to their, you know, their, their feeling that they are the custodians. They're the ones who employ the waqf. Uh, they're the ones who make a lot of decisions and they're the keepers, of, let's say, of the status quo. Um, so it's not really for them. It's not a matter of freedom religion. They believe uh, Muslims, certain Muslims, I should say, believe that um, there should only be in, in Muslim holy places, only Muslims should have the right to pray. Uh, Christians, Jews and others should not have a right uh, to pray. Don't forget Jews, Christians and others are not allowed to go into Mecca or Medina. Um, so 
Here, it's a bit more tricky, obviously, because they're not sovereign in reality. Um, so there is this, what's called the status quo, where Jews are allowed to go up, but they're not allowed to pray. Is that against the freedom of religion? One could certainly make that case, as, as is made by proponents of people going up to the Temple Mount. Um, but it's against what's loosely been called the status quo. And again, I would suggest that nothing Itamar Ben-Gvir did uh, earlier this week was against the status quo, but this status quo, which most people don't even know what it is, let's be honest, it's used sort of yeah, as a battering ram against anything that goes on, considering, you know, Hamas hold rallies there, kids play football up there, um, you know, people are harassed, uh, stones are thrown from there onto the Western Wall, uh, you know, there's been uh, shooting and fireworks attacks on police up there. That's never considered against the status quo. But having Jews simply go up and walk around uh, in the outside perimeter is considered against the status quo. And you'll always see Palestinian media talk about the settlers are storming Al-Aqsa. Well, none of them go anywhere near inside Al-Aqsa Mosque and no one's storming. You walk leisurely around the outside perimeter. But that's the way it's framed. It is such an emotive issue for the Arab world, and especially the extremists amongst it like to make it an explosive issue. Uh, and Jordan very much feels that, it, as I said, in its custodian role, it must speak out to every opportunity uh, on this issue. Thank you so much for breaking that down for us. Uh, Eli Cohen asks, uh, as reported in the Epoch Times, Israel is moving uh, support towards Russia and away from support for Ukraine. Uh, is this the stated position of the Israeli government? No. Uh, first of all, you would never state that, whatever it is. Uh, no, but there will certainly be a slight difference, I think, um, in the way that the conflict is related to. Even between the Bennett and Lapid uh, premiership, there was a difference. You know, Bennett tried very much to be seen as a power broker, not criticize Russia too much. He even went, even on the, the Sabbath, if you remember, he flew to Moscow because he felt that it was so important to be a mediator, et cetera, et cetera. One can argue if that was successful or that was just a ruse uh, by Putin. That, that, that's certainly up for debate. But Lapid was very much more critical as a prime minister and even as a foreign minister uh, before of uh, Vladimir Putin, of the war, defending Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if we remember Netanyahu touts very much his credentials, his relationship he did in the past with leaders around the world, and Vladimir Putin was one that he very much talked about. This was, again, I should stress this was before the invasion. Um, I think Netanyahu would take a far more measured response, and that was even alluded to by the opening speech of the new foreign minister, Eli Cohen, uh, that they will take a... a I don't know exactly what the language they use, but basically it gave a hint to that, that they will not be as, as open, be critical of Moscow. Don't forget, you know, we've talked about this many times, Israel is in a bit of a difficult situation because Russia very much controls what goes on in Syria, it's very much its relationship with Iran. So Israel can't afford, um, you know, let's say some of the statements and, and what some other countries way outside of that uh, you know, challenge uh, can do. Israel has a relationship with Russia because Russia is on its doorstep. Russia prevents Iran from being literally on Israel's doorstep. And the fact that Israel continues to go uh, into places like Syria and others 
to uh, ensure that weapons does not reach Hezbollah and other terrorist organizations means that the relationship that the Jewish state has with Russia is a lot more complex than just sort of taking a side. You know, that's that's geodiplomacy. So I think Netanyahu has a lot more, let's just say he's a lot more experienced, has a lot closer relationship historically with Vladimir Putin. Um, and for him, his major goal is to make sure that Iran does not acquire nuclear weapons. If the one message that's been brought out in every single statement from Netanyahu, from the government, is that is their goal. And Russia is a very important player, and that's part of the P5 plus one. It's a major power. It's growing its relationship with Iran. Iranian drones are being used in the conflict against Russia. So Israel cannot afford to poke Russia in the eye, especially when Iranian nuclear uh, uh, weapons capability could be just around the corner. So I think with all those elements, yes, there'll be a more circumspect uh, approach towards Russia in this government than perhaps there was in the last one. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you so much for taking time to update us this week. Thank you. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, for a webinar with Nicholas Damas discussing care almost canceled my college class. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.